So, um, Uh, yeah, a mentor, scientific mentor from kind of old my old life. It was in um, medication, medication development, um, psychopharmacology stuff, and um, and he would he would often say, in, "Insight is insufficient for behavior change." Insight is insufficient for behavior change. That always kind of, I didn't know what to think of that, you know. I don't know how much I like that, yeah. Because we're at the Insight Retreat Center. (laughs) So, okay. Um, Yeah, I get it. I get it. Not all of suffering is ameliorated by insight, there are other dimensions of our of the path of our healing of waking up and um, and some of of how we actually grow on this path is more akin to maybe tr- muscle memory or training our muscles yeah and our biceps or something don't exactly learn and forget. They just get stronger or weaker. And we don't really have to understand anything in that process for them to grow. And so for sure, in some ways, practice is analogous to a certain kind of training we do and we're always trying to read the kind of tea leaves of the moment. What does this mean for me? Was is this is my life going in the right direction? What's the trajectory of this moment? And um, and it's okay sometimes just to drop all of that and trust that um, we're exercising, we're training ourselves, our body-mind, ways that are hard to discern. And so there are a lot of ways we grow and change that are not insight-based. But, um, and sometimes it's almost like the insight feels like it's after the fact. The insight is, is like the steam rising off of the, 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 the freedom that's, that's already been realized. But in this tradition, uh, insight is said to be the kind of, um, the, the sort of, um, guiding force of, of our growing freedom. And insight is almost by definition freeing. If it's not freeing, it may not be insight. Yeah. 
So this is uh, Rob, Rob Berbia saying, any realization, this is, this is his definition of insight, any realization, understanding, or way of seeing things that brings to any degree a dissolution of or a decrease in dukkha, suffering. Insight is is not an idea that we kind of pull out of our heads. We try to like ruminate our way to insight. I know you've tried. Yeah. It's like we all try. We all try to kind of do this sort of top down sort of like, okay, I'm going to treat this like every other problem of being human and just figure it out. Yeah. But um, rumination is is often kind of our attempt to try to think our way out of the first noble truth, that there is dukkha. A lot of our thinking is to try to think our way out of it. And um, and so... Um, the the insight that arises is not it's not through it's not through that kind of ruminative process it's you know sometimes rumination one one researcher said rumination is is self-reflection gone awry yeah and that that i think that's right but um insight isn't even self-reflection gone right yeah it bubbles out of the silence and it feels more like a kind of visual illusion and we break the spell of it you know that that visual illusion which is a vase or it's profiles of two faces looking at each other and sometimes you really just see the vase Sometimes people have a lot of trouble sort of torquing their vision such that they see the profiles. But when we move from the vase to the profiles, insight feels a little like that. This is Eve, Eve Sedgwick. I still hadn't realized it that it hadn't succeeded in becoming real to me, real in the same register as, as a living room. That's the sense in which I want to discuss reality today. Reality is not what's true, but is what's realized, what is or has become real. Where is the gap between knowing something and realizing it, taking it as real? To practice Buddhism, after all, is to spend all the time you can in an attempt to realize a set of understandings, most of whose propositional contents are familiar to you from the beginning of your practice. The intensiveness of different Buddhist traditions testifies to the centrality of the project of realization, to the sense of how normal it is for realization to lag behind knowledge by months or eons. 
I love that, the, what has become real. When something's become real, you don't need to be prodded to keep going. You don't need to, no one else needs to affirm the value of what we're doing. And so the question is like, oh yeah, has dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, has that become real? Have we comprehended it? Have we comprehended, has change, that life is only ever slipping through our fingers, has this become real? Has the innocence of all experience, including what you call you, has that become real? Philosophers sometimes distinguish um, knowledge that and knowledge how. Knowledge that the universe is 14 billion years old. Knowledge how to ride a bike. And Dharma insight is is mostly about knowledge how. Knowledge how not to suffer. There's a story I heard, I think Jack Cornfield um, shared it, of a very beloved, uh, revered old monk in Thailand, uh, sort of known for depth of wisdom. And and he was out at night sometime with a young monk, maybe a new, new, a novice monk, um, somebody who had been in the world, kind of. And and they saw a satellite or something. And the, the, the elder monk was kind of like, had to have that explained, what that is. And actually to explain the satellite, the young monk needed to explain that the earth is round, that it's revolving, that we're moving around the sun, all of these things. Yeah. All a revelation to the old monk. Yeah. But he knew not how, how not to suffer. Knowledge, how? Insight seems like it's about uh, cognition, about ideas, about propositional, you know, the world is like this. Um, maybe there are some ways that's so, but it's, it's also very much about affect, about the body. Yeah? And um, it's about the body and and feeling. It almost feels like the wisdom is embodied. It's like it has a. It's in our bones, kind of. It's muscle memory. 
and um, and insight is it's a sense of the world getting bigger. It's like a widening range of the realm of experience. It's um, a new kind of um, new flavors of love, new flavors of grief, new flavors of freedom. This is um, Nicole uh, Nicole Krauss um, from from her uh, her novel uh, The History of Love. Read, read a couple paragraphs. Feelings are not as old as time. Just as there was a first instant when someone rubbed two sticks together to make a spark, there was a first time joy was felt and a first time for sadness. For a while, new feelings were being invented all the time. Desire was born early, as was regret. When stubbornness was felt for the first time, it started a chain reaction, creating the feeling of resentment on the one hand and alienation and loneliness on the other. It might have been a certain counterclockwise movement of the hips that marked the birth of ecstasy a bolt of lightning that caused the first feeling of awe. The oldest emotion in the world may be that of being moved, but to describe it, just to name it, must have been like trying to catch something invisible. Then again, the oldest feeling in the world might simply have been confusion. Having begun to feel people's desire to feel grew, They wanted to feel more, feel deeper, despite how much it sometimes hurt. People became addicted to feeling. They struggled to uncover new emotions. It's possible that this is how art was born. New kinds of joy were forged along with new kinds of sadness. The eternal disappointment of life as it is. The relief of unexpected reprieve the fear of dying. Even now, all possible feelings do not yet exist. There is still those that lie beyond our capacity and our imagination. From time to time, when a piece of music no one has ever written, or a painting no one has ever painted, or something else impossible to predict, fathom, or yet describe takes place, a new feeling enters the world. And then, for the millionth time in the history of feeling, the heart surges and absorbs the impact. Mm-hmm. A new yeah, a new feeling enters the world. Uh, yeah, may, may it be so. Usually we, um, we think about, uh, we want to get insight so that we can get happy. But um, happiness may be the precondition for insight. The sense of the enoughness of the moment may be the precondition for insight. Because suffering pools the attention, it narrows the field. 
we just are chewing on the problem of the moment and a kind of positive mood feeling starts to actually broaden the view and insight often comes like in the peripheral vision it's not this like chewing 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 it's the enoughness of the moment and then some some new something new a new feeling is born this entails a measure of um relinquishing the dominant modes of interpretation yeah this is why we encourage not knowing not knowing we're too familiar with ourselves all too familiar with our uh the stories we tell about ourselves about the world about happiness Rachel Aviv uh, a book uh about mental health um it's just published she said um uh there are stories um there are stories that save us and stories that trap us and in the midst of an illness it can be hard to tell which is which and um i saw that line i was like yeah in the midst of being human it can be hard to tell where we're actually putting down all the familiar kind of reference points um the way in which um we bring so much to uh to the moment our models of how the world works and it feels like we open our eyes and we see the world but in an important sense we open our eyes and we see our mind yeah. and some of this path of insight is about the kind of um uh surrendering surrendering the familiar reference points and plot lines tolerating a measure of disorientation and not knowing uh, so that we might know in a new way so that a new feeling might be born and so when ajahn chah says everything is teaching us we're talking about updating our our kind of models of self world and uh, and happiness and the development of that is is supported by samadhi max spoke about uh, a beautiful way uh that that samadhi samadhi as for me it's like very it is it is about the unification of attention it is about the sense of non-competition non-competition within the circuits of our of our body brain nothing's actually divided against itself yeah nothing's pulling 
There's nothing pulling on the attention anymore. It's just offered. And that's one's dimension of it. But the other dimension of samadhi is that the mind, we are so porous and the mind is so impressionable. Maybe we say suggestible. And what we learn in the context of samadhi is leaves a deeper mark on our heart than what we might learn in the context of the ordinariness of our minds. And so part of how uh, samadhi functions is to um, to give our insights legs yeah. to um, to burn it in more deeply to our heart, whatever that is, maybe something very simple. I don't want to do that again. Or I will not treat myself that way. Or I want this. Or everything changes. Or a million things. But it leaves marks. Uh, and samadhi is what, what sort of actually helps insight, the, not just the arising of insight, but the consolidation of insight. So, uh, stop there. And um, yeah, we we have about twenty minutes for yeah, dialogue, or we can go back and forth. Yeah, how am I sounding, Max? You hit that drum well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, thank you. That was beautiful. And, um, I love the image that you offered of insight bubbling up. And one of, one of the, you know, the, the lines or the teachings, I don't know where, where exactly this came from, um, but popped into my head in this, this idea that, um, Insight is always an accident, but we can become accident prone. <laughs> you know, probably heard that one. And so I guess a question for you is, um, you know, either w what does that mean to become accident prone? How do we become accident prone? And I think you touched on this in, you know, in a, in a few different ways. 
and then maybe related to that or 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 connected to that um is there a practice of insight that we can separate out from a practice of samadhi are they are they the same thing looked at from different angles can they be you know different things um yeah Um, yeah, so how do we, how do we become accident prone? Um, one thing, it sounds weird, but, um, we stop caring about our life. Yeah. I should say more. Yeah, yeah, it's so, um, it's so natural for us to have, in a certain sense, relatively narrow, short-term aspirations about what practice is going to do. It's going to, resolve this tangle, it's going to help me let go of that, it's going to help me grieve this, it's going to help me make this decision. And um, and it can do that, and it can do it beautifully, it can do it beautifully. But the realm of insight is, often requires that we start caring more about the moment more about awareness than we do about our so-called life. Because if we, if we have a problem set that we're just chewing on and we're just looking for the solution, it's very hard to put down the, the kind of dominant frameworks and models of this is what the world is. This is what happiness is. These are my problems. This is what progress looks like. This is how I get happier. And part of how, uh, insight develops is a certain kind of, um, it, it just is, is fueled by, a curiosity that has no agenda for where it's going. Yeah. It's like, it's not like, like we do not realize a Nietzsche or a Nata or something when we're like, I'm going to, we've all done that. Like, okay, today I will realize a Nietzsche, tomorrow a Nata, and then Nibbana, whatever. It's just like, no, this, there's no, we don't engineer it. Yeah, we don't engineer. We do not know where insight is going to come from. But it it happens uh, in the kind of intimacy of not knowing, that Zen line, not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing is most intimate. And so we're, we're very actively putting down some of those dominant modes and frameworks, some of which we are so ubiquitous and everywhere that we don't even recognize as a framework. Yeah. 
And um, some of what samadhi does is it starts to starts to blow apart some of the kind of deep assumptions, and we become suggestible in ways that we can start to take on new modes of seeing. And they won't feel like a lie, and they don't feel like pretend. And then we, we, we may learn, we may learn. Uh, and, and then the question about this, the separation of samadhi and insight I think, um, I don't think from my understanding, you know, I'm not a scholar, but my sense is the, the Buddha never meant to separate the samadhi and insight in some rigid kind of way. And sometimes even the very definition of mindfulness includes a facet of concentration. Like, like when a, when a, a teacher of mind, Shinzen Young defines mindfulness as a threefold skill set working together: concentration, sensory clarity, and equanimity. Concentration, attending to whatever we deem is relevant. Clarity, a kind of higher resolution, more discrimination between the different strands of experience and equanimity, a kind of un... Mm. We may have preferences, but we don't feel the compulsion to act them out. Yeah. And so right there in mindfulness is concentration itself. And... Um, um, but I don't, I don't have the sense that... Um, Certain certain kinds of of samadhi, I do think, are my sense is they're not strictly necessary for insight, and some of the very very narrow, absorbed kind of um, very various flavors of coarseness, kind of bliss at at increasingly fine, you know, refined levels. Um, I. I I don't feel like that's, um, I don't feel like that always uh, leads people towards insight. And I don't feel like it's a necessary ingredient of, of deep insight. But the, these are debatable kind of claims, different people. I'm curious what your intuition is on it. But, um, but I do think um, some sense of the, the samadhi as this, really this unification of the mind and the kind of porousness, malleability of the heart-mind, that does feel important in learning new things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, um, one other um, image that um, stood out for me from what you shared was the the shift in perception, you know, of the, you know, the vase and the, and the faces or just the duck and the rabbit or the old lady and the young girl, mm -hmm. you know, that, that everybody's familiar with that, that, 
And I remember getting that in school and you're kind of like staring at it and you're staring at it, staring at it. And then other people are like, oh, wow. You know, like it's just popping. People are just popping. They're getting it and they're getting it. So like, hmm, hmm. And then at some point you kind of, you know, I used to remember kind of giving up or something, you know, in a little, little bit of something like that where it's like you can't like just effort your way into it. But you've also got to stay near it. You can't just throw it away. And and it seems like that there's something there about, um, well, two things. One is about the kind of effort we make. You know, we're putting ourselves in the game. We're coming to retreat. We're, you know, we're, 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 we're coming back, but we're not, we can't force anything. Mm-hmm. Like but then the other point, which I'm, I'm curious to um, get your thoughts on, is the really profound thing about that perceptual shift to me is that nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. The picture didn't change. You know, the picture is exactly the way it was. We changed, mm-hmm. right? How we, how we looked changed. And what, it, what is the implication for that in terms of, what we experience in meditation, and I think it's the most sort of conventional idea, is that it's some particular kind of experience that will change. It's like once I stop having all this junk in my mind Mm -hmm. and clear that out, and then something great is going to happen. But it sounds like what you're saying is the junk it's still the junk, you know, the junk, the junk doesn't change, but it's how we, it's how we see it. It's, you know, it's like the contents of our mind is actually not what gets transformed. It's, it's the perspective. Mm-hmm. And so just, yeah, wondering your thoughts mm-hmm. about that and mm-hmm. how do we, what, what does that mean for practice? Mm-hmm. You know? um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I appreciate that. Um, let's see. So it may, it makes me think a little bit last, last retreat, um, just last week, actually was with Gil and, um, and he said something about, uh, he was using the language of the what and the how, the what we're attending to and the how we're attending. And with an emphasis of like, yeah, the heart of Dharma is, is in the, in the how. Yeah. And it's your language made me think of that too. Kind of like how, yeah, nothing's changed. The vase, the faces, it's still the same lines, but um, how it's being perceived shifts and that changes a lot. And our world is enlarged by being, seeing both. Um, this this uh, like this um sense that's come up a, maybe in group today um once the sense of yeah, the these actually these researchers kind of cognitive science kind of characters said all thinking is wishful thinking yeah she's like okay what does that mean all thinking is wishful thinking and what they're pointing to is that 
our our attempts at knowing are suffused with our motivations. Yeah. The knowing is not separable from the wanting. I really, you know, uh, want whatever, want samadhi, and I'm going to like really intently focus on my breathing. I want something from the breath. I want something from my mind. The wanting and the knowing are not separable. The wanting infuses the knowing. And so in Dharma practice, we're learning to begin to cling less, to surrender some of the ways that um, clinging shapes the view. And we cling less. Okay, I'm not not even trying to like engineer samadhi. I'm not trying to find my salvation. I'm not trying to solve this or that problem. It's like, it's really like the agendas are pared down dramatically. And then the knowing, the knowing is different. It's more porous. Yeah. The world looks different in the absence of craving. Phenomena appear differently in the absence of craving. This breath that I've known for all these years is different, the absence of craving. And so rather than trying to like exactly like stand up some new view, we let go of some of the clinging and see how that shapes the view. Um, I, I don't. I, this is not a dramatic pause. I just yeah. don't know. <laughs> just don't know. <laughs> well, well, it sounds to me um, like what you're saying is yes and no. Nothing changes, but also something changes mm-hmm. because there's. it's not like the contents of our mind or the contents of experience are fixed. They're co-created. And if there's, mm-hmm. if there's wanting in the mind, if there's fear, that, that, that creates what we see, what we perceive. And when, the, when that fear and that wanting and, um, uh, is 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 softened or is released, then, um, of course, there's a different view. Mm-hmm. It's like it's, and we're still ourselves. We have you know our the contours of our life, the, the situation of our life, the circumstances, our people in our life. The that's all what it is, mm-hmm. you know, and. Um, 
helps us kind of um, update our autobiography in ways. Like we we drop out of the compulsion to make meaning in order to learn something new. Then we learn something new and, you know, then that is sort of informs the story we then tell about our life. And that that changes over the course of practice and there's a certain kind of humility maybe in the kind of tentativeness of every story that that no story is the last word no story every story is at least a little bit wrong and having seen the kind of process of fabrication through which we build meanings and coherence and stories and having seen um, the kind of density of experience um, thin out in these kind of realms of insight, just the very feeling of life thins out. We feel more like a kind of gust of wind. The world feels like a gust of wind. And, um, and in, in seeing the kind of, um, the, the fragility of every story, um, we were sort of reborn in a certain sense back into the realm of meaning but with new meanings and a deeper appreciation of the kind of tentativeness of anything we might ever say about self and world. And that doesn't leave us in a state of bewilderment or indecisiveness, and we're still our own personality and all our goodness and beauty and our foibles and everything. But um, but it, it means... Um, we're never exactly a hundred percent lost in narrative. Uh, never disappear into it. So let's just sit for a moment. 